Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. Your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Washington, D.C. today. A little change of, change of location. And as always, I am joined by... I'm Bob Azanko in Houston, Texas. And as always, we thank you uh, for watching or listening and ask that you subscribe and share and follow us and all that good stuff. <laughs> and Scott can tell you, if you really like us, what, what you can do. Yeah, and if you really like us, you can become a donor to the Green and Red Podcast. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you can go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button. Or if you want to become a patron and be a recurring donor, you can go to patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Uh, we have a challenge out there right now. We have 16 patrons, and we are looking to move it up to 20. So you could be that 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, or 20th patron for the Green and Red Podcast. So uh, please donate. Great. I'm really excited today for the guest we have on. Um, it's somebody I've known for a while whose work I've admired for decades, really. I was uh, doing my dissertation when I first came upon his work, and I've followed it extensively and closely since then. It's Andrew Basevich. Uh, Andy is a retired colonel, served 23 years in the Army, and he is also an emeritus professor in international relations at Boston University and the founder and president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's written a bunch of stuff, a ton of books. He's been in the media, New York Times, CNN, all over the place. Uh, many books, including The Limits of Power and Washington Rules. And today we're going to talk about his latest book, which is called After the Apocalypse. And we have all kinds of good questions for you. But before we get started on the book, I have something a little bit off, but I think you're the guy who would know this stuff is better than anybody. Um, one of the bombshell stories this week was about Mark Milley. From Bob Woodward's new book, apparently Milley and Mark Esper, Trump's appointee as Secretary of Defense, were really kind of terrified right before the election. Then, obviously, after January 6th, that Trump might do something even crazier than most of the things Trump already did. And so Milley apparently took measures to the point where he and maybe even Esper called the Chinese uh, military officials and told them, you know, essentially, don't worry, we're not going to let Trump, you know, use a nuclear weapon or something like that. Um, and I'm inclined to believe it's true, but have you ever, and you're, you know, is there anything like that you can even think of that's ever happened? And what do you make of the military intruding to that extent, which in this case, I think we're, we're glad it happened, but, you know, also kind of is kind of dangerous in its own way. Well, I, I think it's really hard for us to uh, outsiders to appreciate what it must have been like inside the Trump administration after Election Day. Uh, when Trump basically ceased to govern. There was nobody really running the government, but instead uh, began this uh, conspiracy to overturn the outcome of the election. So, you know, I, I guess I want to be somewhat generous in granting that there was some reason for the panic that uh, Woodward and his collaborator described in his new book, even though, you know, as with every Woodward book, there's all these direct quotations. There's no footnotes. Uh, the quotations are anonymous, uh, you know, so, you know, it, it's hard to know what to believe. But this is plausible. 
So I kind of sympathize with Milley's position, but I think he was wrong. I mean, uh, the, the the word treason has been thrown around. Uh, you know, I, I think perhaps not inappropriately. It is not the job of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff or any other active duty military officer to communicate directly to our adversaries and tell our adversaries either what we're going to do or not going to do, or even more to the point to say that you can count on me to prevent uh, some particular act from happening. So the whole thing is is troubling. Uh, I suspect Milley is an honorable man with honorable intentions, but he he radically uh, trespassed on the principle of civilian control. And I find that very troubling. Okay. I wrote a column that's in, in the, it has recently appeared in the Los Angeles Times, I'm not exactly sure when, and my conclusion was the country probably owes Milley a debt of gratitude and President Biden should fire him. I think that would be the, the, the proper response at this point. One of the scary things about Trump is that he's turned, you know, kind of liberals and other people into defenders of these kinds of actions or defenders of NATO. And, you know, well, at the end, I, maybe we can get you to say something about Afghanistan, you know, defenders of the war. You know, he's such a, a drastic and polarizing figure. So they are indeed strange times. Um, but we'll, we want to talk to you about your book, too, because it's just it's outstanding. And I would encourage all of you to to go out there and buy it and read it. But I think Scott wants to start here and then we'll we'll just talk. Yeah, I, I guess just to kind of kick it off, our, our, the first question would be is like, what motivated you to write this book? You know, you write a lot about the pandemic. You write it, write it a lot about climate change. The, the title is uh, After the Apocalypse. Uh, and, you know, in my I, my work, I actually do a lot of work on climate. So I found it actually uh, some of the very intriguing. Well, I guess the inspiration of the book was uh, all the events of 2020, uh, which which came together. What were we talking about? We're, we're talking about uh, the the escalating climate crisis, uh, which of course manifests itself, I think, most uh, immediately uh, in things like the fires out west or the the hurricanes uh, on the Gulf Coast. That plus uh, the pandemic, plus the related economic collapse, plus the ineptitude and dishonesty of of President Trump and his administration, plus the the demands for a reckoning with American racism, not necessarily related to those other matters, but that demand for reckoning then uh, triggering or at least exacerbating uh, the rise of of white uh, populism. I'm not sure how old you are, Scott, but I think Bob and I are both old enough to remember 1968 as a really, really, really tough year uh, for all kinds of reasons. We don't need to to rehearse all that. But it seemed to me that 2020 was just as bad as if not worse. And so that that was the impetus for me to to write this book. and, and the purpose of the book is to try to understand the implications, the ramifications of these crises that we were confronting or were confronting us uh, simultaneously. And because my beat, as it were, is you know foreign policy, national security policy, 
I tried to examine the implications of all these things for our role in the world. I've, like I said, been following your work for, for a long time, and you've always been like a really important critic of American foreign policy, of American empire. Um, but what I really was intriguing here was how you brought COVID, climate change, Black Lives Matter protests into a larger national security paradigm, which most people don't do. Why did you think it was important to kind of converge all of these ideas together um, and not just deal with like domestic versus foreign policy kind of kind of typical narrative? Well, I mean, I've been a, a critic of U.S. national security policy for a long time, as you suggest. But I guess what the events of 2020 drove home is that the most pressing national security issue relates to keeping the American people safe and secure where they live. It's a phrase I use in the book, where they live. And I, I was struck by something that I knew but really hadn't thought about. I was struck by the fact that the prevailing national security paradigm, which I would date from the very beginning of the Cold War, assumes that the threats that we need to worry about are out there. They're in Europe. They're in East Asia. They're in the Persian Gulf. And furthermore, the assumption is that the proper response to those threats centers on accumulating and being prepared to use military force. So when you think about the arc of US policy between let's say 1946, 1947 and the present moment, the highlights are wars that we undertake to address those threats out there. Now, now, Bob, you and I might actually disagree a little bit on whether or not that posture was necessary, let's say back in the late 1940s or the early 1950s. But I bet you we very much agree that by the time we get to the end of the Cold War, the post-Cold War era, that posture, meaning amassing military power to, to address threats out there, was uh, frankly counterproductive. Absolutely. And when we look at the post-Cold War era, you know, basically from the fall of the Berlin Wall uh, through the, the Trump presidency, man, we, we are sending forces to deal with threats out there with great frequency, uh, with uh, not a heck of a lot of success, uh, and at a, at a time when the threats to our well-being and security back here where we live are accumulating, not totally ignored, but sort of treated as an afterthought. So my, my big message in the book is that the time has come for us to, to reject the prevailing national security paradigm and to come to a different understanding of, of the requirements of security centered on concerns back here where we live. That's what's really important. A lot of your work and in, in, in this book, you talk a lot about American exceptionalism, um, which is can be a misguiding force uh, domestically in the US amongst the populace. It's, you know, it's something that's embedded in the culture wars. And so how would you see, you know, on, the, on some of these, I, I think last year when 
Bob and I did a lot of shows on all of those crises that were happening, mm-hmm. crises that were happening last year. And I called them the sort of like all the crises, crises clashing, crashing into each other. But how, how does American exceptionalism, that's this sort of notion of that, how is that misguiding the country, particularly in, particularly in some of these domestic crises? So let me confess that I was once a firm believer in American exceptionalism. You know, I, I mean, not, not sort of in a literal sense. I didn't get up in the morning and, you know, bow to the altar of American exceptionalism. But I think from my own upbringing, uh, I, I took it more or less for granted that we are a chosen people, you know, chosen by God, chosen by providence, chosen by history, who knows? But yeah, we're chosen people. And the, and the, that endowed us with certain prerogatives not to be allowed to other nations. It, 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 it validated certain expectations about what we as Americans deserve, things that, don't, that others don't necessarily uh, have, a, have the same kind of uh, uh, right to, if I can use that term. But I must admit, the older I got, and particularly as we entered into this post-Cold War uh, uh, era, I, I came to realize how pernicious this way of thinking is. And yet it, it's hardwired, I think, uh, into our collective sense of who we are. Uh, and certainly uh, the, the, the notion of American exceptionalism is deeply embedded in American politics at the net, at the national level, you know the two parties uh, disagree on a multitude of of things, but I think they at the end of the day, Republicans and Democrats agree this is the greatest country that ever existed in the history of humankind, uh, and if you believe that, it becomes exceedingly difficult to examine realistically and critically our own history. You know, American exceptionalism allows us to give ourselves a pass. It allows us to say, well, our intentions are good. It allows us to say, well, yes, perhaps some mistakes have been made, but, you know, they are not, the the mistakes that have been made are far less important than the achievements for the things that we credit ourselves for. So uh, it's a problem. Uh, and the very fact that it's hardwired, I think, makes it that much more difficult for us to recognize a problem. Now, now, you know, Bob's a historian, and Bob would say, the members of the historical profession don't, for the most part, don't buy into American exceptionalism. Members of the historical profession, for decades, I think, uh, have been uh, taking, uh, providing, offering more critical perspectives on on our history, our past, our you know our our trajectory, but I don't think that the efforts of the historical profession actually have much uh, impact on the American collective consciousness, uh, which derives from other things other than you know what the historians are are saying and writing. Sad, I say that sadly, but I mean I think no, no, no. I, in fact, right now I've been writing something on like critical race theory in sixteen nineteen, the way. You know, Trump and these Republicans have been using history as, as a line of attack. And I think that's actually part of this idea of American exceptionalism, because you have like Mike Pence and Pompeo explicitly 
tweeting things out to that extent. You know, this is an exceptional country. This is the greatest country ever. How dare you criticize it? So it's still a very strong force, which I but, think. But, but Bob, it is not just the Republicans. No, no, I oh, totally it's agree. the Democrats. Too. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, absolutely. It's mm-hmm. yeah. No, I think many of the you know, I've said that and many of the people who, you know, I've been, you know, I've used your work in my classes before specifically to get that point across that on certain issues, it's a national, it's a national idea. It's not a political idea based on party. So absolutely. Um, I have, I want to read something that you wrote because it's really touched me. Um, And it kind of gets to that point. When I lay awake at night, worrying about the planet that my grandchildren will inherit, it's not terrorism that prevents me from sleeping, nor is it Iran or North Korea or Russia or even China. It's the puerile witlessness of a national security apparatus oblivious to real and proximate dangers that, if ignored, will only worsen with time and ultimately jeopardize the American way of life. It's non-Pentagon preferred threats, typically treated as addenda, that demand our attention. Now, that's something that any of the new lefty people I read and write write about, and some I write about, would would say it's it's pretty strong. And like, what brought you to the point where you would call it puerile witlessness? Right? It's a pretty harsh condemnation. I guess it. What brought me to this point is, I'll use the term disgust, my disgust, at the trajectory of U.S. policy since the end of the Cold War. Again, again, I think, you know, I was a Cold Warrior, Bob. Uh, You know, a lot of that, a lot of my young adulthood was spent in the military. I wasn't uh, asking a lot of critical questions about whether the Cold War was justified about whether the Soviet Union uh, was should be uh, defined as an adversary. I'm, I more or less accepted that, went, went about my business. But when the Cold War ended, instead of that moment providing an opportunity for the United States to become what I'll call a more normal nation, instead what happened after the fall of the Berlin Wall was that that we, we set off on this pattern of military activism, you know, intervention, interventionism, uh, that, that struck me even in the early 1990s when it was still beginning as, as dangerous and misguided. And of course, then as, as we enter into the, into the current century, that pattern of be- behavior becomes even more prevalent. 9-11 happens. Response to 9-11, the declaration of a global war on terrorism. I mean, a preposterous undertaking, even on the face of it. And the then George W. Bush administration says, we're going to war against terrorism. And also we're going to, we're going to war against something called an axis of evil, consisting of three countries, none of which had anything to do with 9-11. And you know, we, we end up with the, the Bush doctrine of preventive war claiming a unique prerogative to to go to war against any entity that we imagine might someday become a danger. And one would say, well, if all that ended at a bunch of wonderful victories and the planet is a a, a safer and more stable place, you could say, well, I guess it was justified. But of course, that's not what happened. What happened was the forever wars, what happened was destabilizing entire regions of the planet. What happened was, what's the estimated cost of the 9-11 wars? I think right now it's something upwards of $8 trillion, even though we know that 
the cost of treating simply Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, the total bill will be multiple trillions of dollars. And of course, you know that, that sets aside the most important thing, which is American troops killed, American troops wounded, literally hundreds of thousands of other people, not Americans, killed, larger numbers displaced. I mean, the God, the God dang thing is a, is a, is a, a travesty. Uh, and it's all, it's all on our shoulders. I mean, uh, ours in the sense that we are a democracy. You know, at some level, the government, the state acts pursuant to a set of purposes that leaders believe we have endorsed. You know, Bob, I think you were, uh, I think you were probably a lot more involved in anti-war activities than I was as a, as a young man. But certainly as a young man, as a young officer, I was, you know, very aware of the intensity of anti-war sentiment uh, in the country. And by comparison, if we look at the at the post 9-11 period, man, that's been pretty tepid. uh, It seems to me it has not it has not been very politically uh, influential. We can you know, we can look to certain progressives in the Democratic Party, and we can say, well, they, they have been loud and they have been clear, uh, but they don't run the Democratic Party by a long shot. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I would even say that some of the progressives in the Democratic Party are not as dovish as, as we would like, or that they are, or as dovish Democrat, dovish as Democrats have been in previous generations. It's, mm-hmm. you know, we look at, we look at Sanders and we all love him, but, but then he's, you know, he voted for wars and against you in the against the former Yugoslavia. He voted for wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, um, or maybe not Iraq. But um, my my question is, um, I actually started as a grad student of Bob's, and uh, one thing we used to talk about in class quite a lot was uh, the permanent wartime economy. And so it's like it was you know something that came after World War II. It's something that really existed through the Cold War. And then it seems like the in the nineties, the U.S. foreign foreign policy establishment was looking for you know new ways to kind of maintain this sort of permanent wartime economy. And like it felt like at some point it struck gold with the with the global war on terror. And I'm wondering if you could comment any on it, that all, that very much benefits like industry and the private sector. And I'm wondering if you could just like comment on some of these like war profiteer uh, corporations. And this is also, Bob and I actually used to, when we were doing any war work, we actually organized in Houston against like companies like Halliburton and Kellogg, Brown and Root, et cetera. Well, there is a military industrial complex. Yeah. I mean, uh, Eisenhower was right. He was right that it is a pernicious uh, entity. Now we have to admit that the military industrial complex uh, defense spending as a percentage of GDP uh, is no longer anywhere near what it was uh, during the height of the Cold War. Uh, if I remember correctly, like late 50s, uh, t- t- was it 10%, I think, of the economy uh, was, going to the, was going to the Pentagon? I, th- I think not quite uh, 50%, but you know, 40-some percent of the federal budget uh, was going to, to the Pentagon. Uh, and you know that that is the beginning of an answer of how the military industrial complex acquired so much clout. I think here we these several decades later, it still exercises that clout, but it, the the explanation is not simply in the the number of dollars that are funneled to 
the Pentagon, although they are the number is huge. Uh, but I mean, there's, there's more there's more dollars that goes uh, more dollars that, that go to, uh, you know, Medicare and Social Security and, and, and programs like that, which does not. Well, it does translate into some political clout, but doesn't translate into political clout that has implications for for national security policy. The point I'm trying to get at, I think, is it's not the number of it's not the percentage of of the nation's wealth that goes to the Pentagon that explains the continuing influence of the military industrial complex. But the way that over the years, our political system has become warped and and warped in service of the military industrial complex. So example, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut is on balance a pretty admirable figure, I think. Uh, and I've I've had a couple of conversations with him in my capacity as president of the Quincy Institute. He's an he's an impressive guy, but guess what? Nuclear submarines are made in Connecticut, and he came out loud and clear the other day, insisting upon the importance of building more nuclear submarines. The deal that the president just announced between the United States, the United Kingdom and Australia, whereby we're gonna provide technology and I think build build the boats uh, for the Australian Navy, you think that's gonna work to the benefit of Connecticut? And therefore, do you think Senator Murphy is gonna sign up? Regardless of whether from a national security perspective, from from a perspective of, U.S.-China relations, whether it's going to be good for that or bad for that. So that's the problem, I think. I mean, it's, it's an illustration of the problem. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it is a problem with no easy solution. Yeah. In the 80s, um, Chris Dodd, I forget who the other Connecticut senator was, were both against the Contra war, but also um, I forget which, which uh, defense industry was there, but they also voted for you know, huge increases in like Apache helicopters because those which were being used. And, right? Because <laughs> there are a lot of Low Wiker. Was Wiker the senator at the time? But, uh, you know, so. I mean, the thing is, like, you can take the most liberal, per, you know, representative, but if there's some kind of defense industry in his or her district, you know which way the vote's going to go. I mean, the defense military budgets. If I am not mistaken, uh, Senator Sanders uh, was a very enthusiastic supporter of. Uh, F-35, the new F-35 fighter jet uh, being provided to the Vermont National Guard, uh, which has a base up, I think, in near Burlington. You know, it doesn't seem like a Bernie issue, yeah. uh, but he hopped on that bandwagon because that would mean a whole bunch of jobs in Burlington. I mean, you can't trust those Canadians either. So. <laughs> yeah, we got to keep an eye on them. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast with Bob and Scott. And we want to thank all of you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. As always, we really appreciate all the support. Um, You can uh, subscribe on YouTube or you can listen to us on any of the major podcast platforms and you can subscribe there too. You can rate and review us, which would be really great because those algorithms help us get more listeners. 
And then you can also follow us uh, on our webpage at greenandredpodcast.org. And then we're on all the social media, Instagram and uh, Twitter and Facebook and, and everything else. And if you really like us, you can help us by donating and becoming a supporter of the Green and Red Podcast. And so you can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast, or you can go to our website at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And every dollar helps. We have a small, uh, slight overhead. And so any support helps uh, Green and Red Podcast bring you new episodes all the time. Uh, I, I guess kind of moving on, the next thing I'd like to talk about is just Afghanistan. Um, and I'd like to get your thoughts on the U.S. withdrawal of Afghanistan. And, you know, that's, it's been in the press a lot. I, I'll say that I've spent a lot of time listening to a lot of interviews, reading a lot about it. I'm just wondering um, what your thoughts are as the U.S., you know, the withdrawal, the end of the war, the end of the forever war, et cetera. Well, I mean, it was it was it was mismanaged. Uh, there clearly were intelligence failures. I don't, I don't I can't you know describe them in detail. Uh, there clearly were uh, planning failures on on the part of American commanders who who knew that uh, an extraction, an evacuation, an end of the war was coming, but were completely caught by surprise by the way the events unfolded. That's a significant failure. It's a failure that deserves to be examined. It would be nice if somebody were held accountable, however unlikely. But, and I think the big but is, what happened in, what, August of 2021 is not nearly as important what happened in the prior 20 years. I mean, the, 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 the real catastrophe, the real failure is a 20-year effort on the part of the United States uh, to create a legitimate nation state and to create effective forces able to defend that say, state, spending a couple trillion dollars pursuant to that undertaking, uh, killing a bunch of people, losing a bunch of people, and it resulted in a dismal failure. That's what really requires an investigation uh, and an explanation. And there, of course, you know, the, one, of the, one of the reasons that everybody gets, uh, not everybody, the Republicans get hot to trot about the evacuation is they can point the finger at Biden as the president who was in office when this occurred. But if you look at the 20-year failure, guess what? Both parties own it. Yeah. And the military owns it. Yeah. And the foreign policy establishment owns it. And any number of pundits uh, who, who supported the war own it. So that's where the investigation needs to happen. And of course, if you investigate that honestly, then you're going to come to a far deeper understanding of, of what this thing is all about. Well, then actually something you write, um, and you're specifically talking about military leaders, but I think it applies to the State Department and the Defense Department and pretty much everybody in the government. You said that military leaders don't even try to learn the lessons from their past mistakes like Afghanistan and, and Iraq and you know, like you just said, there were, this has been 20 years in the making. And, you know, I'm not privy to any kind of confidential information, you know, but just it was, wasn't that hard to see that things weren't going well. 
is this kind of a just an intentional ignoring of the past because the conclusions are you know something they don't want to know or I mean, is it just hubris? Is it arrogance? Why? Why are they unwilling to actually, you know, as you pointed out, the military does really big and pretty detailed studies of all this. I've read a bunch of the stuff that you mentioned that's very boring and long, but, you know, it's in there, but they just, are they not looking for it? Do they not really care? Do they think it doesn't apply to them? Well, I think they're their professional and institutional interests are best served by preserving the existing national security paradigm, uh, which funnels something close to a trillion dollars a year to the, to the national security establishment, meaning the military, the intelligence communities, and, and so on. Uh, it provides their, the, 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 the centerpiece of their lives. I mean, when I, it's, been, it's been a long, long time since I was an army officer. Uh, and, and what, what becomes clear to me today about that part of my life was the extent to which my identity was identified, was, was defined by what I did. I was defined by the fact that I was an officer in the United States Army. Uh, that's who I was in, in, the, in the deepest and most fundamental sense. And if, if that's where you are in terms of your own self-understanding, it becomes exceedingly difficult to ask first order questions about what my institution does, tries to do, actually produces. First order questions about wh whether, whether all of that contributes to the well-being of my fellow citizens. Uh, and and, and therefore, if I'm critical, as I am about, you know, the four-star generals who I think are, are more or less brain dead, you know, in their unwillingness to examine how a catastrophe like Afghanistan could have happened, I have to admit that there was a time when I myself was not particularly able to uh, even acknowledge the legitimacy of those questions. I mean, I, I served in Vietnam early, very early in my time in, in the army. Uh, I, think, I, I think it was not till I got out of the army that I was able to come to terms with Vietnam. To, I mean, I understood it had gone wrong. I, I appreciated, or at least understood the extent to which the war had divided the country in, 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 in profound ways. I think I had at least a vague sense of how the war was related to uh, exceedingly important changes here on the home front that related to culture, that related to you know, social, social makeup. But I didn't want to think very deeply about any of that. Uh, it was too uncomfortable. So I had to get away from that life, I think, to begin to reach reach my own conclusions about what Vietnam went, meant, about how Vietnam fit into the larger context of US policy. And again, uh, it was the passing of the Cold War and, and our entry into this militarized post-Cold War era that I think uh, brought my own uh, 
concerns, convictions, <laughs> truths uh, uh, to, the, to the forefront. I mean, speaking of that vested interest, what struck me was when Biden announced the withdrawal and then didn't apologize for it. And I actually support that. Even I agree with you. It's a 20 year problem. But he was just eviscerated by the media and by, you know, even even his own party, people in his own party. So there's this like vested interest of, on behalf of so many people to maintain this kind of national security state, even though, you know, the world is arguably far less safe than it was before 911. I mean, what 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 makes media and what makes, you know, just kind of a representative from Iowa, you know, get so angry over this withdrawal from a country that, you know, really, let's face it, Americans didn't really have much to say about the war. They didn't really think about it. And when he initially announced the withdrawal, I believe 65 percent of Americans supported it. And yet he was just, you know, this is what they came after him for, not masks or mandates or the fair to get an infrastructure plan or anything like that. But but a withdrawal from Afghanistan, a 20 year war. Oh, you know, we've been conditioned for decades to, to believe in the imperative of American global primacy, American global leadership. We have to lead. If we don't lead, who will lead? And, and I think that that notion is deeply embedded in people who serve in the military and people who serve in Congress and people who write newspaper columns for the Washington Post and, and, and the New York Times. And it, it becomes heresy to suggest that, well, maybe, maybe the moment of American global primacy has changed or has, has, has ended. Maybe we are living in a new world in which certainly the United States is gonna to continue to be a very important player on, on the world stage, but, but maybe primacy is in the past. Maybe we're now entering into a, a, a multipolar world in which, in which the United States won't call the shots. I think that's a radical thought. It may not be radical on, uh, you know, in, in, in your classroom, Bob, uh, it may not be radical, you know, in and around Berkeley, uh, but I think it's I think it's a radical thought in Washington D.C. And so there, and and, and then when we get evidence like the uh, the evacuation from Kabul, which exposes the limits of American power, exposes the depth of American incompetence, uh, you know. People get real, real unhappy, real, real fast because of the implications of that kind of a failure uh, for uh, expectations of, of continued primacy. Uh, it's like it's you know when you're when you're confronted with uh, uncomfortable facts, uh, denial uh, ends up being kind of a reflexive response. I think you know. I just wrote a short article, something I just bumped into the other day. The Navy, I think this is like two or three days before the 9-11 anniversary, the Navy announced that it was deploying something called Task Force 59 to the Gulf as part of the Fifth Fleet. And this, the Navy's all excited about this because Task Force 59 is gonna consist of unmanned aerial vehicles, unmanned surface craft and unmanned subsurface underwater uh, craft. So it's, an, it's a task force 
of unmanned, of unmanned systems uh, that the Navy says is going to conduct, this is a, a, a term they use, uh, uh, multi-domain military operations, uh, not specified, in the Persian Gulf. And I'm, I'm reading this thing and I'm saying, my God, you know, we are barely out of Afghanistan. And in essence, the Pentagon has turned the page and they are now embarked upon the next phase of the forever war. We don't even take any time to figure out if there's something that we should have learned because we got these new technologies and we want to put these new technologies to work. And of course it happens with, you know, not even a blip of serious discussion uh, in, the, in the national media. Well, just kind of on a, a more kind of impressionistic or even philosophical question. Um, a few weeks ago, we talked to somebody who was working on Daniel Hale's case. He's the whistleblower. He was a drone operator who talked about, you know, the kind of inaccuracy of a lot of these drone attacks. And I just wonder what, you know, how you felt about kind of using these unmanned drones that are being operated. You know, people are being attacked in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan from Omaha. And, you know, even though, you know, apparently the attack uh, in Kabul, we now know, hit 10 civilians, including somebody who had worked for the U.S. as a translator or something in his family. And just kind of as a, as a military veteran, as somebody who studied this, you know, how, did, how do you feel about just that idea of this, like, long-range techno warfare that is really impersonal? I am the least technically proficient person on this <laughs> call. I can tell you that for sure. Yeah. I bet you I'm the only one of the three of us that does not have a cell phone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not, I am not Sorry. On, I'm not on Facebook. I yeah. don't do Twitter. <laughs> I think all of that is kind of the work of the devil. It is. And <laughs> and let me but let me say that I think one of the one of the really, really dangerous uh uh themes uh in in US military thinking that probably dates back to the Vietnam War is the expectation that advanced technology provides simple answers to complex uh, problems and will deliver victory. Uh, I think that is deeply, deeply pernicious. Not simply because you, you cited the, the, the recent episode in Kabul. Yeah, we, it, it appears absolutely clear we killed. Uh, a bunch of innocent civilians, non-combatants, and we did not get uh, the alleged uh, ISIS-K bomber that we were we were going after. That is a minute example of of failure. You know, it gets discussed for a day and then it then it goes away. Uh, but I I think that this conviction that the right technology equals easy victories. Uh, a, a, it hasn't worked. Uh, B, it has caused untold uh, collateral damage, as we like to like to call it. But it's, I think, pretty deeply embedded. Again, not just in the military, although for sure there, but also, you know, in in the larger national security uh, community, we keep buying more and more technology without really having an appreciation of, of what it results in. I must admit to me, one of the really ironic things, you know, when we first, I think the first use of a drone 
at least by the U.S., maybe Israelis had done it before, but the first use of, of a drone to deliver a missile happened within weeks after 9-11. It was kind of a, wow, we, we used a drone and we killed somebody. And, and this was seen as an example, of course, of superior American technology and proof, proof that we enjoyed this technological edge. And here we are, 20 years later, everybody's got weaponized drones. You know, terrorist organizations got weaponized drones. And, and, and to me, the, the, point, the, point, the point there is that just because you think you've got some gee whiz technology today that you think gives you an advantage, guess what? Uh, that technology, you know, is exported uh, and, and suddenly your advantage goes away because your adversary's got the same capability. As someone who's involved in like environmental movements and et cetera, I mean, we're not quite seeing weaponized drones, but like every police department has a, some kind of drone capability and we're using to surveil and monitor the different things that we do. And it's, it's, you know, it's domestically, it's also becoming very much a tool. I, I expect one day that probably not the too distant future that we'll see them dropping tear gas or something on, on protests. Um, well, certainly that, that capability exists. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, uh, my, isn't, isn't the related point there, the whole, uh, the surveillance regime that we, we just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. that privacy as we understood it 20 years ago doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and oh, yeah. it, it would appear that the, the momentum in that direction is all but unstoppable. Yeah. I really don't think that we have any kind of a grasp as, as individual citizens for the implications of that for our our lives, or perhaps more to again referencing my book to the to the lives of my of my my grandchildren, uh, I don't think that issue gets nearly the amount of attention that it deserves. I, you know, to spend I I spend a lot of time with a younger generations people who are much more involved in politics or very involved in politics, and at this point, they it's just like taken for granted. It's like they're listening to us. I mean, there's there's like countermeasures that activists have about that, but like their expectation is that anything they do or say, whether it's on the internet or on the phone mm. or what have you, is like being recorded or being monitored. Mm. And which is, I, I I'm uh, I came up in the generation that was a little bit before that, and so we didn't think that all of our phones were tapped all the time. But now it's like we feel like these these phones are just living tape recorders all the time. So my students were mostly born after nine one one and. In class one day, I mentioned something about going to the gate at the airport and they had no idea, you know, like it just that was that, you know, we used to just walk up to the gate. You walk yeah. through, you could go visit people, you could, you know, wave to them. And yeah, it's it's uh, and, and I think in a lot of ways, you're right. That ship has sailed. I don't see us kind of returning back to any kind of level of privacy or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm right. sorry, Scott. Yeah, I was going to actually just I had another question kind of with the theme of what we've been talking about today, which is this sort of, you know, um, I think it was John Quincy Adams said that America is always in search of new monsters to destroy. And so we're, you know, 20 years after 9-11, the U.S. is pulled out of, of Afghanistan. And it seems like that uh, China definitely is a issue which continues to, you know, be 
in the foreign policy space. And I'm, I'm kind of curious about what your thoughts are on, are we going to see a new Cold War with China? Are we, what is, how is this going to play out? Is this, and is this going to be an opportunity, like talking about military institutions, which are not learning any of the past lessons, is this going to be an op- just another opportunity for them to say, this is why we need more military spending? Well, I know my colleagues in the Quincy Institute, and you know, I'm talking to you from Massachusetts. Uh, they're down in Washington. They got a much better feel for sort of the tone, direction of conversations. Uh, they believe that uh, the establishment, uh, I don't know that the establishment treats a new Cold War as inevitable, but highly likely and, and, and probably not unwelcome. You know, that's, that's the next chapter. That, that is, quite frankly, the way to try to restore American primacy, some might think. We need to confront this new uh, challenger. Whether that's going to happen or not, I don't know. Well, then you I, mentioned I think a key, But a key, a key here is where the Biden administration is going to come down. Now, there is one theme of the Biden administration is to take very seriously the climate crisis and by extension to recognize that there will be no effective response to the climate crisis unless the United States and the People's Republic make common cause. You know, it's kind of like no brainer city. Yeah. On the other hand, uh, we hear from the Biden administration, a lot of talk about uh, the, rest, the renewal of great power competition. We've got this new agreement uh, with the UK and with Australia to provide very sensitive and sophisticated submarine technology to the Australians for their Navy. Uh, you know, and, and of course the Biden administration, well, this has nothing to do with China. Well, of course it has everything to do with China. So there is this tension between recognizing a need to collaborate with the PRC and also a tendency to see the PRC as the preeminent uh, challenge to American primacy. I think it's too soon to tell how that gets sorted out. But I mean, I think the way when it gets sorted out, to some degree, the the fate of the pl- planet will 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 hang in the balance. You know, I've said this to Scott before, but in I think the '80s, George Kennan wrote a piece in Foreign Affairs where he said that. You know, and at the time, nu- nuclear weapons were still a major issue. But he said that uh, he believed that some kind of climate catastrophe was a far greater threat to the existence of the planet than nuclear weapons was. And this was in, like in 1983. And, mm-hmm. you know, 40 years later, and I, they still kind of haven't gotten it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're getting close and, and we really appreciate all your time. Um, your last section is called is titled, I believe, Toward Responsible Statecraft. And where you kind of have some ideas about, you know, what you would uh, urge you know, policymakers and, and military officials and defense intellectuals. Uh, do they still use that term, defense intellectuals? Uh, but, <laughs> I'm not uh, sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what, what you would urge them to do or what you would recommend. And I don't know if you want to just talk a little bit about, you know, is there any way out of this? It feels like we're in this vortex and there's no way out of it. Well, I think there needs to be a very realistic reappraisal of our, of our global military commitments. And I, I'm sure what I'm about to say is an oversimplification, but I'll say it anyway. And that is that if we consider the U.S. commitment to provide, to guarantee uh, European security, 
Uh, I think that that was probably was a necess- was necessary in 1949 when NATO uh, was created. The Soviet Union, we may have exaggerated the Soviet threat, but the Soviet threat, both military and ideological, was real. Western Europe was weak. It was good for us to, to, to support Western Europe. None of the conditions that existed in 1949 exist today. Soviet Union's gone. Uh, Russia is not a friendly country, but Russia is not the USSR. Putin is not Stalin. Uh, the Europeans have recovered. Uh, they are prosperous for the most part. Uh, they are they are democratic. So I think it's time for the United States to withdraw its guarantee, and 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 let the Europeans own NATO. Point number one. Point number two. So in other words, our commitment to Europe is redundant. If you look at the Middle East, Persian Gulf, our commitment there is counterproductive. I mean, the Carter Doctrine in 1980 committed us to uh, providing for the security of the Persian Gulf because we said the Persian Gulf was of vital interest. A, it's not today. We don't need their oil. We need to be using less oil. Uh, And our efforts to, to, to establish security in the Persian Gulf have repeatedly backfired to our great cost. So there we need to end our military commitment because our military commitment is counterproductive. There are other ways to engage in the Persian Gulf to try to encourage stability. Asia, however, I would say is the one place where our military commitment should continue. I do take seriously the potentially destabilizing effects of the rise of China. I think if we pulled out of East Asia, Japanese would go nuclear, South Koreans would go nuclear, we'd have a bigger arms race than we already have. So to me, the the status quo probably makes sense. But more broadly, I think that instead of thinking about, uh, instead of focusing national security policy on these faraway places, I think it needs to be focused much closer to home. So in the book, I propose that the centerpiece of US national security strategy should be a North American security zone. North America, Canada, Mexico, us, huge territory, huge population, some significant security problems. We need the, the, there's a concern about maintaining the territorial integrity of Canada as the Arctic melts. There certainly there are pressing security concerns within Mexico that relate to uh, uh, drugs, uh, criminal cartels. There are problems with porous borders that allow uh, for criminality, guns, drugs. We have common uh, problems related to uh, the environment. So I think that that ought to be the focal point, the North, North American security zone. And security there doesn't mean building more aircraft carriers. Security there means uh, enhancing the capacity of institutions that do keep us safe and secure where we live. Probably means less money to the U.S. Navy, more money to the Coast Guard, less money to the U.S. Air Force, more money to the United States Forest Service so they can buy more and more effective aircraft to be used in in fighting uh, forest fires. Those are just examples. But a reallocation of attention and resources to provide greater security 
to the North American security zone and pay less attention to these faraway places that we imagine are the source of the threats that, that are the greatest danger to us. Um, I know you're very humble, but I, I really appreciate the way you kind of take this holistic approach because I read a lot of this stuff and, you know, rarely do you see somebody who can integrate COVID and climate change and the black marketing guns and immigration and, you know, the, the melting of the Arctic into this larger national security analysis. So I, I, I really like this. And anybody out there, I would certainly recommend it. And um, really thank you for talking with us. And um, I don't know if Scott has any last questions or any last thoughts, but um, I really appreciate it. It's, it's always good talking to you and we'll, we'll definitely have you back again, uh, hopefully, if, you, if you're willing. So Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Scott. All right, folks, you've been listening to Professor Andy Basevich, Andrew Basevich, a uh, longtime historian, and uh, he was a colonel in the military. He was a colonel in the Army. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, please think about becoming a patron of the Green and Red podcast at uh, patreon.com backslash Green Red podcast, or you can become a one-time donor at greenredpodcast.org and just hit that support button. And then also... Uh, we, you know, we have a stellar, stellar social media presence. So check us out on Facebook, check us out on Twitter, uh, check us out on Instagram. Our Instagram game is super dank. I'm just going to say. And then also this, this <laughs> interview, as well as many others will be on, uh, YouTube. And so if you go to YouTube to check us out, hit that subscribe button down in the bottom, right. And then we also have a new segment called the weekend review where we're, you know, 20 or 30 minutes of listen to me and Bob gripe and rant about the week's news. Uh, we just put a new one out today. It comes out every Friday. So, you know, be sure to check that out. Uh, and so with that, we're going to just uh, say adieu and everybody stay safe, make a lot of trouble, and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye.